0: I want to uh, begin this morning with uh, reading a little blog that I uh, get online. It's actually from Chuck Colson. Some of you may have heard this one. Uh, it was recent. There's a Breakpoint blog, but it's also on the radio. But um, it starts out like this. In a never-ending battle of the technological titans, score one for Steve Jobs. No, the CEO of Apple hasn't come out with yet another groundbreaking iProduct, at least not since the iPad, but he's done something even more extraordinary. This might surprise you. He's brought good values into the mix. Jobs has made it clear that he wants to keep pornography off Apple products as much as possible. Obviously, Apple can't control everything its users do, but it can make porn scarcer on its products, and it has done just that. That's great, huh? As you might expect, this has triggered a frenzy among some critics. Ryan Tate, a writer for the Gawker website, sniped at Jobs about suppressing his customers' quote-unquote freedom, prompting Jobs to respond, yep, freedom from programs that steal your private data, Freedom from programs that trash your battery? Freedom from porn? Yep, freedom. Yeah. When Tate replied that he didn't want freedom from porn, Jobs answered, you might care more about porn when you have kids. In a correspondence with a consumer, Jobs went even further, speaking of his company's moral responsibility to keep porn off the iPhone. How refreshing, the writer says, it is to see someone who actually gets it. That yes, there are those of us who prefer to be free from the storm of smut that assaults us from every television, computer, and phone screen. The supply of pornographic material is so overwhelming that access to it is certainly not an issue of freedom anymore, if it ever was. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote these words, The demand for absolute liberty brings men to the depths of slavery. Ben Franklin said this, Only a virtuous people is capable of freedom. An incredible contrast is unfolding in front of our eyes. On one hand, ours is a day which screams for liberation. People cry for freedom from societal rules, civil regulations, personal restrictions, moral restraints. They want to be free to do their own thing. On the other hand, it is also a day which is immersed in addiction. To drugs, to alcohol, sex, self, violence, pleasure, and passions. While we clamor for freedom, we descend into bondage. In our attempt to sidestep the restrictions of righteousness, mankind has slipped into slavery to sin. Bonhoeffer and Franklin were both right. The fact of the matter is that there's only one prescription for freedom, and Jesus gave it. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you say it. You shall be free indeed. Jesus is the way to absolute freedom, and he has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to live in it. Over the last couple of messages, I began to cap this series on the Holy Spirit off by giving you some enduring truths about the Spirit's ministry to take away. The first one we talked about was that His faithfulness endures so we don't have to fear because we're secure in His presence and we're sealed with His promise. The second thing we looked at was that His frustration still builds so we we shouldn't be foolish. Foolish. Last week we talked about these seven sins against the Holy Spirit that the Bible talks about. That he can be grieved, resisted, lied to, quenched, insulted. We can defile his temple. And that there was a time when he could be blasphemed. But today I want to talk about freedom. Today, I want to talk about the third aspect here that we're going to look at, and that is that the Holy Spirit's freedom still rings, so let's not forget it, okay? Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says this, in the past, the law held us like prisoners, but our old selves died, and we were made free from the law. So now, we serve God in a new way with the Spirit, and not in the old way with written rules. So what are we free from? First thing we're free from is we're free from the law of sin. We're freed from this cold, hard letter of the law and saved to the righteous guidelines of the spirit of grace. Amen. Now, does that mean that we have license to do whatever we want to do? Well, you know the answer to that. Absolutely not. Scripture speaks clearly to that. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Do you think that we should continue sinning so that God will give us even more grace? The question is posed. Paul says, no, we died to our old sinful lives. So how can we continue living with sin? In a book I was reading recently, the author poses this hypothetical question now. Imagine an alcoholic going into an AA meeting and hearing these words. We're so glad you're here. We want you to know that you are loved and forgiven through nothing you have done. Of course, don't expect to change. Don't expect to stop drinking. We don't like it when people suggest sobriety is possible. We believe it breeds arrogance and self-sufficiency when people think in terms of actually not drinking. We have a little bumper sticker it says this, Twelve steppers are not sober, just forgiven. Ouch. That hurts, doesn't it? How ridiculous does that sound? Someone once said that freedom is the right to be wrong, not the right to do wrong. Look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Verse 12. We'll start there. Therefore, Paul writes, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Look over at chapter 8. We're going to camp out here these first four verses for a minute. Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an Offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, note this, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to what? The Spirit. Romans 8.1 has been called by some people the most hopeful verse in Scripture. Read it again. There is therefore now no condemnation, say it, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't think there's a person in this room who on the day they stand face to face with Jesus Christ, on the day when that final judgment is pronounced upon their life, does not hope to hear the words spilled from Jesus' mouth, no condemnation. The Holy Spirit. Mentioned by the way, only one time in chapters one through seven of Romans is mentioned at least 20 times in chapter eight alone. It's a powerful chapter. Literally, it is his life in us that enables us to resist the intense pull that sin exerts on us on a daily basis. His regulating control over our bent on sinning is what sets us free the spiritual life that is imparted into the life of every believer when they come to faith in Jesus Christ enables us not only to desire God's will but also to do God's will the message expresses it this way a new power is in operation the spirit of life in Christ like a strong wind has magnificently cleared the air freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. I love the way that sounds. But you know what the problem is in our culture? In our lives? In my life? Even within the professing body of Christ? Is that people don't see the pull of sin in their life as a brutal tyranny. They don't. They don't see it as a brutal tyranny which leads to death. Our culture is under the false assumption that real freedom is the removal of all restraints. That was the lie that Satan perpetrated in the garden. And by one act of disobedience, all of humanity was placed under the brutal tyranny of sin and death. Read Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It'll tell you. We thought the sexual revolution of the 60s would liberate us, yet what has it given us? AIDS, no-fault divorce, fatherless homes, sexual predators, and an entire generation of dysfunctional and depressed people who are handcuffed to pornography, psychiatrists, and Prozac. That's what the sexual revolution of the 60s gave for us. The lifting of all restraints does not liberate. None of those things made us free. Rather, they made us freewheeling. Freewheeling like a runaway train screeching down a steep, slippery slope toward destruction. And the Bible says that there comes a certain point in time that God takes his foot off the brakes and gives people over to their own rebellious momentum. And all this reminds me of something that is known as the law of the kite. You know the law of the kite? Here's the law of the kite. You ever fly a kite? How many have flown a kite? Here's how it goes. The freedom for the kite to fly is related to the string. Right? Let me explain. The very thing that holds the kite to the earth is what is exactly what is keeping it in the sky. Cut the string and what happens to the kite? It falls but the string which seems to bind it, is actually what allows it to fly. If you think that the principles God has outlined in his Word somehow have shortchanged your freedom, I want you to think again. God has set the anchor lines not to limit our freedom, but for our own good and security and freedom to live for him. You've heard this before a hundred times. You hear it on the radio through James McDonald. You've heard it from me. I'll say it again. When God says don't, He's really saying don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. Don't you tell your two year old don't go out in the street, don't go near the pool, don't wander off in Walmart, don't talk to strangers, right? Your eyes will be open," Satan promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, but he failed to mention that their hands would be tied. Contemporary Christian singer Wayne Watson captured the truth when he wrote, freedom. People cry for freedom, but freedom without Jesus is just another wall. And he's right. Remember Matthew 11? That's the great chapter of Lazarus' resurrection. Think in your mind. At the command of Christ, Lazarus stepped forth from the tomb, and it says in in chapter 11, verse 44, that his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. See, Lazarus was alive, but he still had his grave clothes on. He was still stuck in the trappings of death and needed to be set free from that. So Jesus at once gave another command. You remember what it was? Unbind him. Unbind him, loose him, and let him go. He's al- he'd already given life to Lazarus. Now he added the gift of liberty. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ can unwrap you from whatever has been holding you hostage. He can do it. He can loosen you from the things that have entangled you and tied you up in knots. You've made wrong decisions, wrong turns. You've headed in the wrong directions. So have I. And the result has been you're hostage. You're tired of being bound and gagged and held hostage. You're tired of everything else controlling you instead of God controlling you. The good news in Jesus Christ is that today, today is the day of your liberation. He's come to release you. He's come to set you free to become all that God has created you to be. The Spirit who gives us life in Christ has truly liberated us in that we no longer are powerless against the pull of sin. It says here in Romans 8, verse 2, He has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, here's the deal sin cannot claim you sin cannot condemn you and sin can no longer control you if you walk in the spirit does that mean we can achieve perfection in this life well of course not the potential is there the chances are that's not going to happen The unfortunate truth is that even a person who has the Holy Spirit residing in them will constantly struggle with the presence of sin, but they no longer have to be enslaved by it. Before a person comes to Christ, they are under the illusion that they can stop sinning whenever they choose to. People think they can quit sinning like quitting smoking. But what happens is, People don't realize that that the human predicament is so desperate, according to Paul, that there is simply no way that we can overcome sin on our own. See, without Christ, you and I are merely people who are not merely people. Let me correct myself. We are not merely people who commit sin. We are sinners. We not only fall, but we are fallen. We don't simply lose our way without Christ. We are lost. We sin because it is our nature. Wretched man that I am, Paul said in Romans chapter 7. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? But just when it all seems impossible and hopeless, the answer emerges. Paul says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. For the law of the Spirit of Christ has set you free from the law of the sin and death. This is true freedom. I want to read you an extended passage from Romans chapter 6. If you want to follow along, it's Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. I'm going to read it to you out of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. Just picture this in your mind. Now listen to these words. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. So since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, we can do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act but offer yourselves to the ways of God and the freedom never quits. All your lives you've let sin tell you what to do, but thank God you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness? As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living, or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God tell you what to do, what a surprise. A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. Isn't that great? Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. But he followed it up with this, if therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. As John Eldridge put it, any movement toward freedom and life, any movement toward God or others will be opposed. It will be opposed. Marriage, friendship, beauty, rest, the thief wants it all. A.W. Tozier wrote this, So it becomes the devil's business to keep the Christian spirit imprisoned. He knows that believing in justified Christian has been raised up out of the grave of his sins and trespasses. From that point on, Satan works that much harder to keep us bound and gagged, actually imprisoned in our own grave clothes. He knows that if we continue in this kind of bondage, we are not much better off than when we were spiritually dead. Take these words to heart and look at the text again in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. What does it say? Does it say that He will free you from sin's power or that He has freed you? What's it say? Has. He has. It happened at a definitive point in your past. When? When? at the defining moment when you gave your heart to christ he set you free he set you free from the law of sin he also set you free from the law of works galatians chapter five verse one says that it was for freedom that christ set us free therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery in Jesus, believers have been liberated from the external ceremonies and rituals of the Old Testament law. Christ fulfilled them. J.B. Phillips translated that verse like this Plant your feet firmly, therefore, within the freedom that Christ has won for us, and do not let yourselves be caught again in the shackles of slavery. See, we don't need any more legalistic codes of conduct which often creep into the church. The motivation to obey Christ ought to come from the Spirit-led life within our hearts. Amen? Not from man-made laws without. Because the law could not save us. It was powerless to change us on the inside. What we need is a new nature. A power strong enough to overpower the pull of our desire to sin. And the law could never do that. No law could ever do that. It's too weak. It might condemn the sin that's in us, but it can never take them away from us. It commands right behavior, but is powerless in providing the means to achieve it. In the words of C.S. Lewis, I cannot, by direct moral effort, give myself new motives. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done Only by God. See, the spiritual inability of the law demanded the personal intervention of God. My brother once said it, made this offhanded remark one time. He says, oh, I get it. I don't have to be good to get God. I have to have God in order to be good. Makes sense, doesn't it? What all of us need is what reformers called an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness. What does that mean? It means somebody else's righteousness, not ours. And the one thing that was literally impossible for the law to produce was that. But God stepped in and he sent Jesus Christ, his own son. And there, well, look at it in verse 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There is is this depth of emotion in these words in verse 3 that is almost impossible to convey. What God had asked Abraham to do in Genesis 22, 2, the unthinkable thing, Take your son, your only son, on the mountain that I shall tell you and sacrifice him there. What God asked Abraham to do, God himself did. And aren't you glad that he did? I know Abraham's glad he did. Because he didn't have to sacrifice Isaac. But again, verse 3, what the law couldn't do, God did, sending his own son as an offering. And the wording Paul uses here is very precise. God sent his son Jesus, it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came as a man. Now, if he had said in the likeness of flesh, that would have indicated that he was something other than a man. If he had said he sent him in sinful flesh, he would have implied that Jesus sinned in his body, but he said in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, although he was a true man, he was a sinless man. And if Jesus had not been both fully human and completely sinless, his sacrifice would have been completely useless. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4 we have a high priest that sympathizes with our weakness, who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, right? Without sin. The only hope we have for salvation, the only assurance we have that is secure is in the fact that God sent Jesus to be the offering for our sin. Jesus' teaching, as great as it was, Jesus' example, as impeccable as it was, Jesus' miracles, as powerful as they were, could not have saved us from our sin by themselves. Only his sacrificial death on the cross could pay the penalty. What a blessed gift that is. Now in the movie, The Last Emperor, the young child anointed as the last emperor of China is pictured as living a magical life of luxury with a thousand servants at his command. His brother asks him, what happens when you do wrong? When I do wrong, the young emperor replies, someone else is punished. And to demonstrate, he breaks a jar and one of his servants is beaten mercilessly. Friends, I want to tell you something. In the theology of Jesus Christ, Jesus reversed that ancient pattern. When the servants erred, the king himself was punished. And in that punishment, once for all, God condemns sin in the flesh, it says here in Romans. As Warren Wiersbe points out, the law of double jeopardy states in effect that a man cannot be tried twice for the same crime. Since Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins and mine, since you are in Christ, God will not condemn you. We're free then from the law of sin. We're free from the law of works we're also free to fulfill the law of love. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. 13 to 16. Look what it says. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. An old saint once said it this way, love God with all, with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and then do as you please. You've heard me say that before. Within the first part of that statement lies the righteous restraint. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. The second part is your freedom. Do as you please in light of the first part. Because you'll never do anything to hurt God or someone else if you're loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And that's grace. And that's risky business. Nevertheless, it is the business of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Peter writes, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. We're free from the law of sin, from the law of works, to fulfill the law of love, and then we're free to behold and to become like Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 on the screen. New Living Translation I love the way it, it reads now the Lord is the Spirit and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is he gives freedom and all of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord and as the Spirit of the Lord works within us we become more and more like him and reflect his glory even more Isn't that great as we live under the guidance of the Spirit and respond to his moral and spiritual direction, we'll not only experience his true freedom, but we will exhibit true faith because we'll be transformed into the very object of our faith, the very likeness of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And that brings glory to God. And that is the primary goal of our lives as Christians, right? And it's also the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit in you. Choice is yours. Freedom in the spirit or death by the law. Which will you choose? It's an old legend. Fantasy story, but makes the point. An Arab chief tells the story of the spy captured and sentenced to death by by a general in the Persian army. This general had the strange custom of giving condemned criminal a choice between the firing squad and the big black door. The moment for execution drew near, the guards brought the spy to the Persian general. What will it be, asked the general? The firing squad or the big black door? The spy hesitated for a long time, finally, he chose the firing squad. A few minutes later, hearing the shots ring out, confirming the spy's execution, the general turned to his aide and said, They always prefer the known to the unknown. People fear what they do not know. Yet we gave him the choice. Well, what lies behind the big black door, the aide said. Freedom, replied the general. And I've only known only a few that were brave enough to take that door. Stepping out in the spirit means being free to live free. It's going out into the unknown, yes. Yes. But his faithfulness endures, so we don't need to fear. His frustration still builds, so we better not be foolish. His freedom still rings, so let's not forget it. And his fire still burns, so let's fan the flame, shall we? In the Old Testament, the cloud of smoke and the pillar of fire provided guidance and protection for the people of God. And I'm convinced that this was the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. If you read Haggai chapter 2, verse 5, and Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, it seems to indicate that. In the New Testament, he came with the sound of a mighty rushing wind and the resemblance of tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2, right? Folks, he's still in our midst. He's still restraining evil in the world. He's still our guarantee that God's presence goes with us. He is still our protection, our provider, our petitioner, our paraclete, our personal and permanent power for living. And we need him desperately. The memorable words of Jim Elliot ought to flow from our lips as our constant prayer of examine. God makes his ministers a flame of fire, he said. Am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of thy spirit that I may be a flame. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. I love that prayer. So don't fear. His faithfulness endures. Don't be foolish. His frustration still builds. Don't forget. His freedom still rings. Be fervent, his fire still burns. But there's one last thing as I round this up. His offer still holds. So take it seriously. Take it seriously. Two passages of scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, just to show you that God's offer stands timeless. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 to 20 says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days. 1 John, chapter 5. Verses 4, 5, 6, and 11 through 13 says this, because every child of God is able to defeat the world and we win the victory over the world by means of what? Our faith. Who can defeat the world? Only the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and the Spirit himself testifies that this is true because the Spirit is the truth. The testimony is this. God has given us eternal life, and this life has its source in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I am writing this to you, John says, so that you may know that you have eternal life, so that you that believe in the Son of God has it. So, life or death you're free to choose you are free to choose stories told of a young lady who married a charming and handsome young man named John they had a wonderful life together until John suddenly died and his wife could not bear to face life without him She could not stand the thought of not being with John anymore. Sick, I know, but she had him embalmed and brought him home. She put him in bed with her every night and sat him at the breakfast table every morning. How ridiculous. She would say, good morning, John. What would you like for breakfast? She sat him in front of the TV the way they used to do and asked John, what show would you like to watch? Poor woman was enslaved to John even though John had nothing to offer her. About a year later, she left John at home and took a vacation to Europe. There, she met Bill. (laughs) Bill was alive. (laughs) Bill could talk and walk and move. She fell in love with Bill, and after a whirlwind romance, they married. Bill brought her back to the States. And as he carried her across the threshold into her home, he almost dropped his new bride as he looked into the face of John. (laughs) Who's this, he asked. She answered, that's my old husband, John. Bill said, let me tell you something right off. John and I cannot occupy the same premises. Someone has to go either we take John out and bury him and I become your new husband or I'll go back to Europe and you can keep living with a dead man. That's the way a lot of us live in the Christian life. We've got a John somewhere, something dead holding us hostage. But Jesus is our bill. Now, do you want John or do you want Jesus. The Holy Spirit will bury the old life for you and set you free. And that, my friends, is the experience of a lifetime. Choose it. Choose it wisely. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, you are the way and you are the truth and you are the life. And I pray that you would hear us as we pray for the truth that shall make us free. Thank you, our Father, that you have set us free by the Spirit and that we are no longer in bondage to that dead man. Help us to recognize it and to walk in light of it. Help us to see that our freedom is not the right to do as we please, but the opportunity to please to do what is right. And may we do it in the strength and in the character of your son, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.